I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, but we will. Uh, and there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty, Plenty Questions. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday night. It's just before 10 to 8. It's October the 11th, 1973. And a five-year-old me, Al Needham, is sitting round at Tony Bones' house as the tang of Leicester still hangs thick in the air. Hey up, you pop-crazed youngsters, and welcome to the final part of episode 57 of Chart Music. Let's not fanny about. Let's see if this episode can give itself a proper kick up the arse. Come on, 1973, justify my love. Hey, what a grand song. What fun we're having. That was Engelbert Umberdink. Thank you, Eng, and may your humple never dumple. Well, I've been asked by the British Board of Governors to say that it wasn't hello, red brick housing estate, it was goodbye, yellow brick road. And now, my friend Stan. Surrounded by some girls and a ginger lad, does the obligatory mangling of the last artist's name, apologises for the earlier joke about goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and doesn't even introduce the next band by name. But then again, he doesn't have to, because it's Slade with my friend Stan. He says he's been um, asked by the British Board of Governors, sick. Um, he fluffs his words there. And uh, it wasn't Red Brick Housing Estate. It was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I sort of yeah. feel like he's joking, but not joking. It may be just a bit of panto that he's doing there. But I would not be surprised if Robin Nash or whoever mm. had had a word with him after the previous links, like, fuck off and do it properly, <laughs> you know? Mm. But yeah, he doesn't do it properly. He doesn't even, doesn't even mention Slade. Mm. We've handled Slade more than a few times on chart music. And this, the 14th, UK single is the follow-up to Squeeze Me Please Me which became their second single to enter the charts at number one staying there for three weeks in July of this year it's the lead-off single from the forthcoming LP Old New Borrowed and Blue and their first recording since the car crash that put drummer Don Powell in a coma for six days three months ago as is the star with Slade, my friend Stan was expected to repeat the success of the last two singles and the pre-order demand was so huge that 100,000 copies had to be imported into the UK from Germany. But last week it only got to number four and this week it's nipped up only two places to number two. Although the band have taken the still rare step of recording a promo film in Olympic Studios, in case Powell wasn't up to television appearances, here they are in the top of the pop studio. 
There's a short interview with Don Powell in the latest Melody Maker. Mm. He says he's over the worst, but he still has bouts of memory loss. He's using a notebook to jot down what time he's gone to bed and what he has to do the next day. He'd totally forgotten that Jim Lee's brother had filled in for him on the dates that they missed. And uh, he sometimes needs a stick to get about and get in and out of the drum stall. Yeah. So, yeah, tricky yeah. tricky time for Slade. And, you know, as we know, they've just come back from America because in the previous week's Top of the Pops, they gave out a congratulatory message from uh, a cafe in New York before they started singing We Wish You a Merry Birthday and looning about. Right. I, I wonder, because he's obviously, you know, Don Powell's in a bad way and he obviously had to be helped to his drum kit, not just for this appearance, but to record the flipping song. And I wonder whether mm. that's why the song isn't, you know, the kind of big roaring, stomping glam monster that we might expect from Slade. Mm. And it's that's crazy, isn't it? Just how, just how successful they were in as much as a song that only gets to number two is actually seen as a miss, really, for Slade. Yes, which is crazy because it's still selling a huge amount. But I do think that, yeah, what happened to Don Powell actually, in a, I'm not saying it had an effect on sales, but that's why I think this record isn't as fully, I don't know, untrammeledly unhinged as like the great Slade tunes that just come mm. roaring at you. It does feel like they're kind of being a bit careful around around Don, perhaps. Mm. Here's my question about this uh, this song, My Friend Stan. Is it Slade's shark jump? Now, we can't call it a total shark jump because Merry Christmas, everybody, yeah. um, every day and far, far away yeah. were still to come, which are brilliant, brilliant yeah. singles. But if you look at the run of massive songs before it, so if I read out all of these now, Because I Love You, Look What You've Done, Take Me Back Home, Mama, We're All Crazy mm. Now, Goodbye to mm. Jane, Come On, Feel The Noise, and I Squeeze mean, wow. Me, Please Me. Oh, my yeah, God, yeah, yeah. it's a thrilling yeah, yeah. list just to read. Just to say those song titles out loud gives you a free sound of adrenaline. Mm. And then and then this, it's a bit of a bit of a misstep, to say the least. Yeah. The thing is, in, in this week's Melody Maker, we, we learn that Slade have been working overtime trying to crack America. You mentioned it yeah. earlier, the whole, the whole thing about Noddy threatening to stick a boot up their arse if they don't stamp their feet and clap yeah. their hands. But... No way were Americans going to go for a record like this. Um, not that American success is the measure of quality. Obviously, loads of the greatest bands mm. ever just didn't do it over there. Yeah, but, but it's the measure um, of being exceedingly minted and being able to have your own plane and everything. It is. And at this particular time, it's clearly what mattered to their manager, Chas yes. Chandler. Um because, uh, yeah, um, he, he's been very bullish about the whole thing, but American audiences are bemused by the sounds of things mm. um slade apparently went over again and tried in 1975-76 by the time they came back britain yeah. had moved yeah. on so in in a way fixating in that way on american success fucked their whole career yeah yeah jim lee wrote this on a piano and that maybe that um i i like the theory about don powell you know maybe not being up to one of their yeah. more raucous rock numbers but the fact that Jim Lee wrote it on a piano, maybe that's another reason why it doesn't Absolutely. rock. It's like it's like Anglo-Saxon umpar. It's a <laughs> it's a knees up drinking song. It's knees yeah. up Mother Brown. Yeah, this song could not be more British, and it makes me anglophobic. It makes me hate England. <laughs> I mean, which never takes much. But I I'm not saying there are huge cultural differences between the West Midlands and South Wales. In fact. I would say there are a great many similarities, but a Welsh band would never have written this. So I can see why Americans would have thought, fuck this limey shit when they hear it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was assuming that this was written for the American market. Seriously? Wow. I don't think so, Al. Not with the the words. Not with these words. It's a sly songness. It's full of innuendo, Mm. and Americans are never really going to go for that. The phrase that keeps coming across is, and from the way you black my eye, Mm. I know that you're the reason why, is the constant phrase, but... There's a confusion about who it's being addressed to to a certain extent. Yeah. You know that that doesn't help it get get across in America. It's it's kind of a novelty song about rough sex in a way. Mm. It actually surprises me not that it didn't get to number one, but that it got to number two. That it did that well. Um, he sings it noddy with his usual gruff cheer but i spend most of this song trying to figure out who the hell it's about Mm. and who the hell's being addressed it's too confusing you know i think it's a little bit too confusing for for an american audience perhaps yeah because it's got these supposedly risque lyrics but depending on the verse um it stands old man um and there's jack and there's pete and they're all pete's knackered or ill jack's got an aching back yeah 
Yeah, they're they're all knackered or ill as a result of presumably the woman that Noddy's singing to. And yeah, the refrain, and from the way you black my eye, I know that you're the reason why. And from the way he fixes tie, I know you're getting to him. Which I I don't know what's being implied yeah. there. Um, I I mean something is, but it's basically my old man's a dustman. <laughs> and um, to me, it sounds more like a Wurzels or a Mungo Jerry song yes. than a Slade song. Yes. Yeah. Unless to the eyes though, the right? Funny you look- old man is his stands cock. Oh well, yeah. Oh man, I never thought yeah. of that. Well, I I, that's only just that. come to mind now. So, <laughs> but when you look at them to the eyes, it's still Slade in their pomp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got Dave Hill with his super yob guitar. Oh, by the way, do you know who's got the super yob guitar now? Do you know who owns it's, it? Uh, oh God, was it Thingy out of Madness? No, 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 no. Go on. No, it's Marco Peroni out of Adam the Ants. Really? Uh, oh, yeah, he out. posted oh, a picture. Yeah, I don't know how it came to his possession, but he posted a picture of it on Instagram the other day. Um, yeah, Chris Foreman out of Madness, um, he actually commented underneath that photo, but Chrissy Boy from Madness borrowed it yes. for the Shut Up video. Yeah. Um, so that's the connection there. Yeah. But yeah, visually, Slade are giving it Slade still. Mm. Yes. Mm. Noddy's still Noddy with his Victorian industrialist mutton chops. and. But he's calmed down a bit, hasn't he, sartorially? He looks, well, by Noddy older standards, he looks quite dapper here. No mirrors on the hat, yeah. No, and he's got a gold pair of glasses on. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit more Nice waistcoat. Yeah, yeah, he looks pretty natter. He could be in a production of Christmas Carol or something. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's kind of that sort of Victorian gentleman look. Um, his voice, I've you know, I've said this before. It's one of the great rock and roll voices. Um, in the first yeah. Melody Maker piece uh, about them trying to crack America, his vocals are, are described as like the rasp of a leather razor strop, which I quite like. And um, mm. in the second one, the Don Powell interview. Noddy's compared to a Black and Decker hedge trimmer, um, but either way, that voice I think is is wasted on material like this. Um, yeah. th- there's a yeah. bit of a coda to this. The, the fact you know about the fact it didn't get to number one, according to Dave Kemp, who's a Slade super fan and runs a website about them. Um, Chaz Chandler was offered a bribe by David Cassidy's management to delay the release of My Friend Stan, oh. so that. Day, Daydreamer by David Cassidy could have, could have a clear run at number one right. uh, because it was just assumed that a Slade record is going to go at number one. Yeah. So, um, but Chandler wouldn't budge. But obviously, it turned out the Cassidy camp needn't have worried because you know my yeah. friend Stan didn't reach number one and David Cassidy did. Yeah, I think it's mm. it, the problem with the record. I think perhaps the reason it didn't get to number one isn't necessarily a problem with the sound. Not his voice is intact. He's doing it with his usual um, stuff. It's it's the it's the song that kind of comes across like a raised eyebrow, in a sense. It, 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 it's it's mm. kind of not a stance that Slade have taken before. There's humour in Slade songs, without a doubt, but there's a directness as well. This doesn't quite have that. It's more, I don't mm. want to say ironic, but it, it feels like, yeah, a big arch kind of raised eyebrow of a song rather than something that's being entirely confidently delivered. And I think that might mm. be why it didn't, yeah, get as big as the other ones. And number two, in Slade world is a failure at this point definitely and of course it's the first single in ages that's spelt properly yeah i think that's where they went wrong i thought of that yeah you're right on the cover of the song and in the advertising the end is kind of like a mirror imaged flipped over like like simple minds or manic street preachers when they're doing that russian business (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) not good enough slade no must try harder they do for yeah. the next one. You know, it's back to the big hits. But yeah, there's a bit of a yeah. misfire, this. There's more of a convivial atmosphere, isn't there, on this one? They're sort of in a pit, surrounded by yeah. the kids, including a gaggle of women who seem to have been bussed in by the band because they've all got the promotional material. And one of them, who's festooned with my friend Stan Badgers, claps a little bit too hard and topples off the platform at one point. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I'm going to go back and look. Yeah, you must. <laughs> So the following week, my friend Stan dropped one place to number three, where it stayed for two weeks. But the follow-up, Merry Christmas, everybody, right at the ship, when it entered to the charts at number one in the middle of December, staying there for five weeks. That's more like it. Hello, 
Papa Slade. Hello. Bet you've got a fine set of others, my dear. I hear you. And now, straight from America, we have a magnificent group who are going to do their second in a long series of tuits. And it's Limmy and Family Cooking and their latest smasheroo, Dreamboat! Immediately pitched into another section shoehorned in by Top of the Pops to avoid sticking to the charts. Tip for the top, which is represented by a spinning art deco graphic of four women in flowing dresses holding each word on a white film case. After Everett has finished rurally harassing a blonde girl in the audience, oh. he introduces this week's entrant, Limmy and Family Cooking and Dreamboat. We've covered Limmy Shell and his big T in chart music number nine, and this is the follow-up to You Can Do Magic, which got to number three only last month and is still in the charts at number 47. It's only just come out, so it's not in the charts yet, but it's already been reviewed in Deborah Thomas's Tuesday scene in the mirror as a, quote, dooby-doo clap and tambourine bouncer. As they're still in the country doing the club circuit, here they are, straight from a stint at Blighty's in Farnworth to do their pieces in the studio. Again, Everett putting himself about with the ladies. Oh, God, yeah, he says, Mm. you've got a fine set of udders, my dear, to a girl next to him. Mm. And she looks really sort of a bit horrified. And again, Mm. it's not okay. You know, he doesn't get, what whatever yeah. his sexuality is, he doesn't get a get-out for saying creepy stuff to girls. It's, it's a bit much for Top of the Pops in 1972. I can't imagine Tony Blackburn saying that. No. And, and what's most objectionable, in a way, apart from the sexuality of it, it's just, I, I, it's always a bad look when TV presenters who are used to TV try and make members of the public look really uncomfortable. Yeah. And and that's what I that's what I get from that moment. So, why is this on? <laughs> Obviously, they've gone, well, this is going to be a hit, so let's get them in and get some film in the can for future episodes. Mm -hmm. They're kind of banking that it's going to be a hit, and they're American, so they're not going to be around in a couple of weeks' time for a return performance. So, Is it the original version of this record that we're hearing? Because I swear down that guitar solo that starts it all is so out of tune, Ah. and I almost thought this is the BBC Orchestra or something playing it. Ah. Top of the Pops Orchestra are in full effect here, I believe. Yeah, pretty badly, actually. I think they have had a few pints of heavy at this point. And, and the guitar solo at the start is really out of tune to the point where the lead singer seems to grimace mm. having to get through it yeah. before she can start singing. But as to why it's on here, it's same problems with Engelbert. Why is this on here? Mm. We've seen that a few times, haven't we? When you're a new act and you have a big hit, it's generally the, the style that you know, your next single gets somewhere in the charts. So Yeah. Well, they've already had that sort of tip for the top, this is going to be a hit thing with Engelbert. So this is, yeah. I mean, come on. Look at your chart in 1973. There's got to be something better than this or different. Well, there's this. loads of decent shit in the charts at the minute. They're not here and Lemmy and Family cooking off. They're, they're in the country. Anything to say, Simon? Requiem. Requiem, <laughs> requiem, requiem. And us requiem. Sorry, I needed to do that. Um, Back in the late 90s and early noughties, I did a lot of vinyl-only DJ sets at things like uh, the club night, Uncle Bob's wedding reception, and at people's real-life weddings and birthday parties and such. And a few friends who were regulars at these things told me that they used to play pricey bingo, right? Because my set was always quite (laughs) samey and predictable. Uh, There were certain songs I'd always play. And one of those songs was You Can Do Magic by Limmy and Family Cooking, right? Because it's a fucking tune. It's amazing. And I was on a mission to revive that song. It's capable of taking you where Scottish Limmy's travel agent cannot. When Limmy, the comedian on his TV show, (laughs) shows the travel agent the photo of him and his mates on a teenage holiday in Millport and asks for a ticket to there, meaning not the place, but the moment she's unable yeah. to give it to him. And it's such a poignant sketch. But pop music can do that for you. Pop music is your ticket. And mm. You Can Do Magic transports you to the happiest place you can think of. It's one of the most 
uplifting records I've ever heard. And spinning it on vinyl, whether to a crowd or in my own living room, is a total joy. However, however, this song is not You Can Do Magic. It's Dreamboat. And the review in Record Mirror calls it a distinct disappointment after You Can Do Magic. Uh, And perfectly pleasant without having the coherent drive of its forerunner. And I have to agree. And yeah, we'll sort of factor in the BBC Orchestra um, doing a disservice to black American artists, as they often do. But even allowing for that, it's just perfectly pleasant, but no more, I would say. Um, It Mm. is the first blackface we've seen um, outside of the chart countdown, what with the spinners being represented by Pan's people. So, you know, that's not nothing. It's like someone's opened a window, at least. Mm. Yeah. I never knew until researching this, by the way, that Limmy is the guy. And and, and, yeah. and the woman singing is his sister, who is confusingly called Jimmy. Um, <laughs> and also that their records did almost nothing back home in the States. And their main no. their main success was here in Britain, similar Ooh, to Odyssey yeah. in that respect. That, yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder why that is. I, mean, I suppose just one of those things. There was so much amazing soul music coming out of America at that time. Not all of it can be a hit over there and, you know, there's always going to be a mismatch and some bands are going to think, you know what, fuck it, let's concentrate our efforts. I mean, there, there, there are probably American soul bands that we've never heard of who are big in Germany, do you know what I mean? That, that, yeah. that They'll have thought, fuck it, let's just go mm. somewhere else and charge our arm, you know. And I think that's what went on with this lot because they stuck around in the UK for several years after, I believe. Um, yeah. The other thing I noticed about this performance is that, again, we have some weirdly postmodern directorial decisions you've got cameras pointing at cameras it's almost becoming Mm. meta the whole thing unless it's just a fuck up you can't rule out it just Mm. being a fuck up (laughs) (laughs) so the following week dreamboat entered the charts at number 49 slowly meandered upward and a month from now it got to number 31 its highest position the follow-up a walking miracle did much better getting to number six in may of 1974 their last dent in the uk chart ryan reynolds here from mint mobile With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com My mate bought a toaster. We go through celebrities' Amazon purchase histories so you don't have to. Keep calm and love Dom Jolly novelty key ring. Yeah, and fridge that. magnets. Yeah, I love that. The G-spot. <laughs> the good vibrations, guys. Green dot laser sight rifle gun scope. I've bought that quite a lot of times, I think. Right, okay. The sex doctor's guide to keeping it hot. Ah, oh, interesting. Did another child come along nine months later? Yeah. <laughs> Loads of great apps up now and new ones dropping every Monday. That's My Mate Bought a Toaster from Great Big Al. Hello. That was fab. Let me in a family cooking. Ooh, hang on. I have a word with the director. Hello, is that the director? Good. Um, can I bring some cows next week? It's all right. The house trained. Ooh. These BBC people, you know, asked to put on a show, try and get a few cows in it, and what do they say? Something I can't repeat, I can tell you. Meanwhile, we have violins. You know, love is like a violin. Well, here's a group that's just like a violin. 
all varnished and covered in string. It's Eye Level by the Simon Park Orchestra. The camera pans away and swoops across a studio, alighting upon a group of confused-looking lads. We eventually discover Everett, sitting at their feet, whooping. After he pretends to communicate with the director on a walkie-talkie, his spiel is cut by a graphic of the number one on a plinth with all pulsing searchlights around it. And when he comes back into shot, Everett introduces the toppermost single of the week... Eye Level by the Simon Park Orchestra. We covered Eye Level, the theme tune to the Thames TV detective serial Van der Volk, in Chart Music 17. It was composed by Jan Struckart, loosely based on a Dutch-German nursery rhyme, and was performed by an orchestra led by Simon Park, who was born in Margaret Harbour in 1946. On its original release in late 1972, it only got to number 41. But when the second series was broadcast from the end of August and became one of the top-rated TV shows in the country, it was released again, entered the charts at number 48, then soared 34 places to number 14, and then soared all the way to number 1, shoving angel fingers by wizard off the summit of Mount Pop. This is his third week at the top, and here's Simon and his amazing mustard roll-necked band (laughs) in the studio to conjure up the serene majesty of old Amsterdam. (laughs) Playing it to a thoroughly bemused audience, Mm. really. I mean, you you know, sort of, I'm sure only a few years from now, 73, later on in the 70s, if there was a Say A TV theme tune, what you'd have is a video that was fundamentally clips from the TV show. So that's what would have happened. In this era, you have to get the full frickin' orchestra in. Um, Eye Level's not massively objectionable. It's odd that it's at number one, because it absolutely... You usually take up for this sort of thing, don't you, Neil? Well, it's just... It's a novelty in a sense. It's odd that it's number one, because... I, you know, I doubt this got much radio play, did it? I'm pretty sure that the BBC did their best to radio play it. Radio 2 would have been all over it, surely. Oh, absolutely. Radio 1, I'm sure, did their best to play it as infrequently as possible, apart from on the chart shows, mm. and were quite sniffy about it, I should imagine. Yeah. Um, it's weird that the full orchestra are here playing it, um, but you have to have the actual performers here. Um, mm. It's inoffensive in a way. It's another... They have to get the number one on, so I can't exactly call it time-wasting. Yeah. But... Um, it's an odd thing that it gets that high without any radio support and you know i ask the question as ever with songs like this who's buying it shannon or isn't it well i guess so but you know the program's on every week can't they just watch it yeah. and hear this i don't get the thing of, of of yeah needing to buy the theme tune you can put it on a tape cassette player and walk about your local canal and pretend you're in amsterdam <laughs> i guess so but have you ever watched an entire episode of van der Vork? Mm, no yeah this is it nor have i Never, no. Not, I've never watched. In fact, I've never watched more than two minutes of it. Taylor has. Um, he says it's not up to. Of me. course, Taylor has. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, there's no such thing as a Simon Park orchestra, and this yeah. is actually our old favourites, the Top of the Pops Orchestra, mm. doing a bit of mm. moonlighting for beer money. So, yeah, a very rare sighting of a perennial chart music favourite. And, yeah, they look like they sound pretty much, don't they? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the audience looking bemused because we, we do see a lot of the audience in this episode and they do often look bemused, whether it's by Engelbert or by Kenny Everett or by something like this. Um, by the way, um, those lads who the camera pans across to and he's sort of squatting at their feet, they're wearing these mm. matching jumpers. I don't know if you noticed this, but yes. two of them say house and yeah. one says tree. Anyone got any idea what that was all about? No, I don't know what that was promoting. No idea. But yeah, speaking of jumpers, yeah, the mustard polar necks are back. I bet they haven't been washed since last time. The flautist looks like Eric Sykes. They all look like Eric Sykes, let's be honest. Yes. Uh, They just (laughs) do. do. Um, There's one bloke, I think he's playing the flute or something, and he's got a St. Christopher on a chain. Right. But for some reason, (laughs) he's he's got the chain 
tucked under his armpit. What the fuck? Well, it's like he's wearing this really long fucking Dennis Wheatley amulet thing. And it's on a really massive long chain. And he's he, that's what he does when he plays his instrument so it doesn't get tangled up. It's very yeah, strange. Be, yeah. <laughs> I've never seen Van der Valk. Oh, I had never seen Van der Valk. So I did watch a bit for research for oh, this. Oh, well yeah, yeah. And um, I'm inclined to take Taylor's view on it. It's so tame and boring. Uh, much like the theme tune. Mm. I mean, this theme tune has no balls, right? Compare it to some of the great cop show or detective show themes of the 70s. The Rockford Files, Kojak, Starsky and Hutch, mm. The Sweeney, The Professionals, all of those tunes, super exciting. And then this, right, which could easily be the theme for Swallow, <laughs> the regional detective show set in Norwich that Alan Partridge pitches to Tony Hayes. That yes. could be the theme. But it does, like I say, weirdly match the show. So you've got a detective series set in Amsterdam, especially 70s Amsterdam, which has the potential for all kinds of sleaze and dirt and danger and edge. Mm -hmm. But the Mm -hmm. show, from what I can gather from skimming through, didn't have that. And the theme tune definitely does does not. There are plot lines involving S&M, prostitution, the Amsterdam Mm. transsexual scene, and so on. But they're much more likely, from what I could see from the episode summaries, to involve concert pianists, stonemasons, or a mouse there on the stair with clogs on. (laughs) Um, I I happened upon a scene where Van der Valk is in a jewellery shop, and a very camp proprietor says... You won't find anything bent in this establishment, I assure you. And Van der Valk growls, the last thing I'm looking for. Um, and that's, you know, yeah. Um, but it's, it's quite a contrast for Barry Foster, the actor who plays Van der Valk, mm. because in 1972, the year Van der Valk started, he was also in Hitchcock's Frenzy. Frenzy being arguably the wrongest mm. of all Hitchcock's films, some of which were already quite wrong. Um and Foster plays Rusk, the rapist murderer, who growls, lovely, 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 while his victim recites Psalm 91. It's pretty much the anti-Van der yeah, nice. Um So Simon Park did the music for Crown Court, but as we've established, he didn't yes. write this. Um, as you said, he's written by, well, Jack Tromby, the pseudonym for Jan Stockart. Um, at least he was actually from Amsterdam, um, stuck out and the title I level being a joke about the flat horizons of the low countries um Trombi mm. also did the theme for never the twain and incidental music for dawn of the dead but that's kind of it it's not a very glorious cv that he's got and as you say mm. the tune is loosely based on those german slash dutch nursery rhymes i think it's jan hinnek in german and katuchia in dutch from the 18th century right i actually bothered to listen to both of those right and the german one i actually found a sort of english translation sung of the german one it's about a violin maker he he makes a small violin which is referred to for fuck's sake as a fiddlekin in the English <laughs> translation. I mean, twee as fuck, right? A fiddlekin, fiddlekin, fuck off. And um, the Dutch one involves a really awful dance, I guess a clog dance. And just nobody involved in either of them has ever had sexual intercourse. Mm, mm. It's just, ah, I, I hate the way eye level primly prances along and everything melodically is neatly resolved. There's no melodic mm. turbulence. It's It's... Pangloss pop. It's music for people who think that all is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. And it is baffling mm. at number one. Yeah, who is buying it? It's more baffling, I would say, than Moldy Old Doe or something like that. Yeah. It's not even like, you know, um, Kimai by yeah, yeah. Morricone, yeah. Yes. Where, where at least you can see the appeal of that. Um, it's quite a beautiful piece of music, even though it's not an obvious pop hit. But this, right, mm. imagine if you were visiting the UK from America in October 1973. Imagine you were David Cassidy, for example. And when you go Mm. home, people ask you, what are people listening to over there? What's (laughs) what's number one in the UK? And and you have to say, well, there's there's this orchestra. I mean, fucking hell. Yeah, it's... What what this track says, what what it says to the viewer, right, Uh, even more than Engelbert, it says, fun time's over, go home. Mm. And that's Mm. how you'd have felt, I reckon, as a child. Back to your toy soldiers, or your secret seven books, yeah. or staring at the orange. Or your homework. Yeah, your homework, or staring at the orange and brown pattern on the carpet, waiting for the future to happen. 
Yeah, it's insipid <laughs> as fuck. And and it's I think the people who got it to yeah. number one are they that segment of the pop market that we frequently come up against in chart music. Are you people who don't really like music? Or or just want it to solve a simple mathematical puzzle in a sense. And, yes. and you know, they want it to mm. tick that off and have a sense of completion. And excitement really isn't part of what they want from music. They want a sense of clarity and satisfaction, if you like. Which, of course, is not kids. I'd be sat at home. I'd have walked out of the room by now. Imagine being one of those mm. kids who's, you know, waited for your ticket to Top of the Pops. You get there. Oh, and yeah. this is your number one. You know, fuck yes. me. That'd be gutting. Got to watch the fucking Eric Sykes band. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, at least it's fucking memorable. At least you know what the tune's like after you've listened to it. What What's happened to television theme tunes? Well, television theme tunes have a different job now, right? Yeah. You know when you watch a documentary now and the documentary can't just start, it has to actually say everything that's going to happen in the next hour and then go on to unpack yeah. it. It has to have that five-minute preamble. Yeah. Um, in a similar way, theme tunes, well, what are they there for now? I don't remember any of the theme tunes to some of my most favourite shows. At the moment, you know, those favourite shows being obviously high quality content like uh, Forged with Fire and um, you know, <laughs> things like that. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what purpose theme tunes serve anymore. Because I, I can remember entire school trip journeys on a bus filled by kids bellowing out theme tunes note for note and word for word. From the minute we left the school to the minute we actually got there. Generation Hazelhurst, yeah. Well, a lot of... Um... A, a lot, mm. a lot of TV shows don't have a theme anymore. They just do. Is it called a cold open mm. where the show just yeah, sort of yeah. yeah, cold open, yeah. yeah, or or it's just a sting, a little sting, yeah, like two seconds of it or something, yeah, yeah, fucking rubbish. But I'd probably prefer that to fucking eye level. I'll be honest. Yeah, too. Right. I mean, thank God mm. for the skip intro possibilities of current television viewing. <laughs> Imagine if the theme for the professionals was number one, though. That'd be amazing. Yes, exactly. And that's more like Imagine it. Imagine yeah. people dancing to that, yeah. or Legs and Co. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah, people running around kicking doors open. And... Sexy bodies. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. That's more like it. Here's a bit of alternate history. Eye Level gets released the first time round, and it goes up one more place to number 40. And that's it. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that means that in this month, my friend Stan and Ballroom Blitz by a suite are number ones. What a better world we'd be living in. Oh. <laughs> I level would spend one more week at the top before giving way to Cassidy McLove and his sulky songs about daydreaming and dogs. <laughs> it would go on to sell just over a million copies in the UK, Whoa. becoming the second biggest single of 1973. One place above Welcome Home by Peters and Lee. One below Tie a Yellow Ribbon by The Old Oak Tree by mm-hmm. Tony Orlando and Dawn. And would become the second biggest selling instrumental single of all time in the UK. Fucking Behind hell. Stranger on the Shore by Acker Bilk. The follow-up... Hi-Fi failed to chart, and when two LPs also failed to chart, Park wandered into scoring TV series and films, including Danger UXB. He was last seen on an episode of Bargain Hunt in 2017. (laughs) Wow. Yes. Buying up copies of his own single, like J.R. Hartley. Yes. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to leave you with Aiken Tina Turner. I we say good night. What are you looking at? We're going to say good night from top of the pops. See you next week. But I'm Materials Landud, no yucky dog. Goodbye! cut back to a group of kids who are waiting for Everett to do his final bit, which involves him staggering towards the camera with a bandy-legged gait and introducing the final song before falling to the floor. It's Nutbush City Limits by Ike and Tina Turner.
Formed in St. Louis in 1957 when Anna Mae Bullock, the then girlfriend of saxophonist Raymond Hill of the Rhythm Kings, convinced band leader Ike Turner to join them on stage as a bar gig, which led to the latter moving in with the former and eventually getting married in 1962. By the early 60s, they were a regular feature on the US R&B and Billboard charts, but it wasn't until 1966 when they made their first appearance on the UK charts when River Deep Mountain High, which only got to number 88 in America, made it to number 3 for two weeks in July of that year. The follow-up, A Love Like Yours, got to number 16 in November of that year, but after a re-release of Riverdeep Mountain High got to number 33 in March of 69, they left the British charts untouched until now. This is the lead cut from the new LP of the same name, written by Tina about her hometown in Tennessee, and it's the follow-up to Work On Me, which failed to chart. It entered the top 40 at number 32 a month ago, and this week it's at one place to number four. And my introduction to the single is longer than what we actually hear, because (laughs) thanks to Everett's pissing about, they've overrun considerably. Which is gutting, because this is such a fucking great record. This is the fucking highlight of the episode, as far as I can say. Yeah. He can't stop doing his shtick, because, yeah, he comes out Mm. with that bandy-legged walk like he's got rickets. Uh, And he does, throughout the show... He keeps emerging from backstage with a mysterious energy. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and for no apparent reason, he signs off with Landidno Yakida goodbye. Mm. Uh, there's been no mention of anything Welsh. But, uh, who knows? But yeah. Fuck's sake. But yeah, uh, you get 39 seconds of the song. I counted. Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. not enough. I mean, I remember, no, I really remember first... Not. I remember first hearing this on the Formula 30. It was one of the songs on that comp. And yeah. um, the fuzziness of it, the guitar side, everything about this record is fantastic. And, mm. and it's a really important point, of course, in Tina Turner's career, I think. Because, mm. it, you know, there's a lot of late 60s, early 70s songs about the longing for home, if you like, trying to find yeah. a home, trying to go back home or being confused about, you know, where or what home means anymore. For mm. Tina Turner, her hometown is Nutbush, Tennessee. And in, and in a sense, this could be a song about it. Normally, you'd expect songs about home to be, oh, I want to get back there. This absolutely isn't. This is all no. about why she doesn't want to go back there, yes. she, why she isn't there anymore. Of course, it's not known to the general public at this time just what an abusive and volatile marriage she's in with Ike at the moment. And during mm. these kind of years, you know, it's getting as bad as it gets with his mm. alcoholism and his cocaine addiction. I think this song, perhaps I'm putting too much on it, but I think it might have played a big part of her eventual self-liberation if you like mm. she leaves ike with nothing you know all she's i'm not ike with nothing but her with nothing she's got what her buddhism and that's about it did she take on all the debts and everything i think she just to get the fuck away yeah, from him yeah and, and yeah. this is a song about roots about beginnings about what makes a person a person i think uh, perhaps i'm putting too much into it but i think she had a moment of self-realization doing this song and just thought i'm out in a sense. She sings mm. it with pride. It's her town and her roots that can't be taken away from her, even though those roots are quite narrow and regulated as the song kind of explores. But, um, yeah. you know, I think she wrote it, it, it as a reminder in a kind of sense that before she got on stage in St. Louis to sing with Ike, she was her own person shaped by her own experiences and places. And that was worth remembering. And perhaps it gave mm. her a little impetus in seeking, you know, the fact that it was a success gave her a little impetus in, in striking out her own course i was always delighted as well by the rumor and it is just a rumor it didn't happen that mark boland played guitar on this but uh yeah it's not the case oh. it's a lovely thought it's a lovely thought i think you've got three tina turners really you've mm. got 60s tina turner 70s tina turner and 80s tina turner in the 60s mm. she was this young raw soul singer in the 70s she was this kind of strutting untamed sexual animal and in the 80s mm. she was this jaded older woman who wore leather skirts in the way that middle-aged divorcees do right <laughs> yeah and um and i <laughs> even though i i mentioned on a recent episode our, our sort of christmas episode that i only really became aware of tina turner with the heaven 17 collaboration in the 80s yeah the first tina turner i ever saw i'm pretty sure was her strutting 70s self mm. um in a television yeah. screening of the who's tommy and that's, yes. that's who we get on Nutbush City Limits. It's a strutting yes. song, isn't it? It's made for Tina to do that that pissed, pigeon-toed Charleston she does. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 
The thing is, Tina Turner seems all right, doesn't she? Whether or not you like her music, she comes over as a decent, likable person. Mm. Um, yeah. However, Ike Turner famously was a terrible cunt. And I'm not even going to mm. say but, and I'm not going to offer extenuating circumstances. What I'm going to say is that his own backstory was grim as fuck. Mm. Um, mm. His father was kicked to death when Ike was three for talking to a white woman. Then Ike was molested by a 45-year-old woman when he was six and by two other women before he was 12. And abuse is something that often gets paid forward and he paid it forward to Tina. Mm. Uh, Obviously, he's far, far, far from the only person to be violent and abusive to women and also make great music. The mind instantly goes to Phil Spector, who was, of course, Mm. responsible for Ike and Tina Turner's greatest moment, River Mountain High. Weird that the mm. Americans didn't buy that, but there we go. Although Ike yeah. had very little to do with that record, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I could talk about River Deep Mountain High all day. It's one of the most <laughs> staggering yeah. achievements yeah, yeah. of 20th century humanity. I saw Tina perform it live at the O2 in the noughties, and it was still right. phenomenal even then. She did it really sort of faithfully. Faithful as that puppy. <laughs> By the way, um, when, when I went on Twitter to praise that performance, Alan McGee had a pop at me. Have I mentioned this <sighs> on a previous chart music? No. What's that cunt right. saying? <laughs> this is 13 years ago or something. But yeah, he had a pop at me for going about going to see a 60s nostalgia tour, the juggier twat. And um, <laughs> and I, I said I said that was a bit rich coming from the man responsible for Oasis. And, oh, um, it all and, comes back to Oasis, doesn't it? It does. And, and a full-on row erupted in which he resorted to transphobia, going, why don't you get the sex change and move to Thailand? You'd like it there. He tweeted Fucking that at me. Hell. Fucking hell. Yeah, and he went on about me wearing a dress, and then he blocked me because he couldn't handle it. And this was all because I enjoyed seeing Tina Turner do River Deep Mountain High, the mad gacked up <laughs> Anyway... <laughs> Speaking of mad, gacked-up cunts, let's go back to Ike Turner, right? Obviously, Ike Turner was involved in some great things. Going back to 1951, Rocket 88 by Jackie Mm -hmm. Brenston and his Delta Cats, who were actually Ike Turner's Kings of Rhythm, and that's considered by some to be the first rock and roll record. Then there's Peaches and Cream by the Ikeettes, his backing singers. Do you know that one? Yeah. It's a bit of a Northern Soul classic. I love it. It's amazing. If I may, I'd like to chuck in, I can't believe what you say in the mid-60s and Bold Soul Sister in about 1969. Two fucking mint singles. Right. I can't believe they didn't get any more sexy British chart action in the 1960s. Yeah. Ridiculous. Absolutely. And there's this, there's this track called um, Dust My Broom, which uh, I've, I've read loads of books about Northern Soul and they tend to have lists of the best Northern Soul floor fillers ever. And Dust My Broom by Ike and Tina Turner kept cropping up, highly placed on these lists. And it became a bit of a holy grail for me. When when I finally heard it um, through the magic of the internet, because you couldn't find a fucking vinyl copy anywhere, no. I could see the fuss, even even if that's mostly to do with Tina's vocal performance. And mm. uh, Ray Charles produced it, his, his production. Um, but I'm sort of like... Dodging the issue of Nutbush City Limits here, and mm-hmm. I've I've got a part company with Neil. I I don't like it. Um, what did? Yeah, um, I've got to concede that it's quite inventive musically for a soul record at that time, with the use of the clavinet and the and the Moog solo, and and of mm. course the wah wah guitar. And yeah, there is that urban myth about Mark Boland. Gloria Jones was right. responsible for right, spreading right. that rumor, by the way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've I've seen it debunked, and Occam's Razor points to it being. James Bino Lewis of the Kings of Rhythm. I mean, we'll never know for sure, but what we do know is that the song has that oompa, oompa, stick it up your jumper rhythm, which I personally <laughs> oh, no, find... No, I'm not listening yeah. to you, Simon. Don't spoil it for which, me. Which I find grating, personally. One problem I have with Nutbush City Limits is that I don't hmm. care about Nutbush, right? And it's a general problem I have with songs which get super local in the title. The right. other day, right, with, with our Sunday lunch, I, I put on... Um, Atlantic Black Gold, 20 Great Soul Hits by Original Artists. And mm. side one, track two, was mm. Funky Nassau by Beginning of the End, right? Yes, and look, a tune. Well, I'm glad you're proud of your town, and I'm glad you had a nice time at your recording session, but Nassau means nothing to me. Or Stainsby Girls by Chris Rea, right? I don't understand what's exceptional about these girls to the point where you actually name the school or the town. They're just a universal... I remember you sticking up for Ocean Boys in an earlier episode of Child Music. (laughs) Well, look, I never said I'm consistent, right? 
But <laughs> Stainsby girls are just a universal archetype of slightly wild, footloose teenage heartbreaker. Also, Penny Lane by the Beatles. Fuck off. I'm glad Penny Lane's mm. in your yeah, heart, yeah. right? But you haven't given me any reason why it should be in mine, right? And I feel like that about Nutbush City Limits. I don't get what we're meant to take from this description of of a boring, slightly uptight and repressive southern town. I've heard it said that you ha- that the line you have to watch what you're putting down in old Nutbush is somehow a coded reference to racism. But, you know, it flies way under the radar, if so. Right. I-, I went on Google Maps and I, in inverted commas, drove around <laughs> Nutbush. And it, it didn't... It, it didn't take long because it's barely an actual place. It's got 259 mm. people. It's basically just a road intersection with a gin distillery and a church. So it literally is church house, gin house. Right. So it, it hasn't changed since Tina's day. By the way, I don't know about you, when she goes church house, gin house, schoolhouse, outhouse, in my mind, I always think she's going to say outhouse, shit house. It's every, <laughs> every time. Um, but, but yeah... Um, <laughs> the, the, the main road through Nutbush is now called Tina Turner Highway. So they're proud yeah. of her, even if her song makes it sound like a really shit place. Yeah, yeah. And because of this thing of it being really specific to her and being her town, I don't get why it's become such a standard for bands to cover. It fucking pub bands, you hear it everywhere. Maybe this is yeah. not the reason why it does my editing, because you just fucking hear Nutbush City Limits everywhere. It's, it's not yeah. like it's about New Orleans or New York. I just think that below a certain population size, if there's a place mentioned in a song, you've probably never been there, nor do you have any concept of what it's like. It's someone else's very specific memory. Why are you singing it like it's your own? And I, <laughs> and I also hate Proud Mary by Tina Turner for similar reasons. Why are we supposed to care about a fucking boat? Why has that become a standard? <laughs> well, it's but, a Credence song, isn't it, originally? Well, yeah, I know, but, but, you know, yeah. but, but people sing the Tina Turner. You know why this song is covered, Nutbush City Limits is covered so often? It's because it does straddle two genres in a sense. It's got a kind of funk to it, but it, it's a rock song, essentially. That's why, you know, when yeah. Brian Johnson auditions for ACDC, this is one of the songs that he covers to get that gig. Um, yeah. And he does it pretty well, apparently, and gets the, gets the ACDC job. And that's why Bob Seger covers it as well. You know, it's one of those that straddles the kind of thing. Uh, for me, it's the sonic confection mm. aspect of it. It's just the fuzz. I love it. And I love the guitar solo in it and the chunkiness mm. of the beat. Uh, more than perhaps what the song's actually about. So that's probably why that probably explains my liking of it a bit more. But it does straddle the kind of rock and funk genres. And that's why it keeps cropping up in bands doing it, because they're, they're proving something in a sense, or they think they're, that they can cross the racial mm. tracks a little bit. Yeah, with what play that funky music, white boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Obviously it's good. Obviously there's plenty that's good about it, but I think I've just heard it too many times, you know. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's exactly it. I mean, we only get 30, 39 seconds with a fisheye lens shot of the crowd dancing. <laughs> so it's relatively painless. And it's better than the Simon Park Orchestra. I'll give it that. It's a little bit of a lift at the end. It lifts you out of that, at least. So the following week, Nutbush City Limits stayed at number four before slithering downward. The follow-up, Sweet Rhode Island Red, failed to chart, and they split up in Dallas in 1976 when Ike assaulted Tina again in a car, leading her to hiding in a hotel and then at assorted mates' houses before filing for divorce. Of course, she went on to make a solo comeback in the 80s, and this song made another appearance in the charts when an updated re-recording got to number 23 for two weeks in September of 1991. And that, Pop Craze Youngsters, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops and closes the book on Kenny Everett's career on Top of the Pops. Yeah. Right after this episode, he gave a guided tour of the studio and was interviewed by a couple of 13-year-old kids for the John Craven's News Round spin-off show Search, which was broadcast in November. The blurb, are pop fans being exploited and has fan mania reached a new danger point? Beth Miller and John Monaghan, both aged 13, talked to top DJs about today's pop scene and discussed their findings with other children. Mm. They interviewed Tony Blackburn and uh, Jimmy Savile. I've looked all over for the episode. It's it, it, it's not on YouTube, but th- there is the clip, the interview clip with Kenny Everett, which shows him walking around the actual studio and showing us everything. It's massively informative. All oh, right. right. They ask him if Top of the Pops overdo the special effects or not. 
if groups are over-relying on miming. And uh, when he's asked about his favourite music, he says Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto. And they start laughing because they think he's taking the piss. No. <laughs> when he's asked about commercial radio, he reckons it's going to be great and will give Radio 1, quote, a kick up the beebs. And when asked about what he'd do to improve Top of the Pops, he says right. it should be live, like Ready, Steady, Go was, so everyone can see the mistakes. Yeah. He, he comes off as uh, less mature than the 13-year-old interviewers. Yeah, not surprised. With a slight snottiness about Pop. I mean, he did love his classical. I suspect that if he was still alive... With that and his Thatcherite politics, he'd undoubtedly be on Classic FM by now. Ten days after this episode, Kenny Everett commenced his career on Capital Radio and wouldn't be seen or heard of again by anyone outside of London for another five years. Although, of course, his voice would live on in Charlie the Cat on the public information films and as the voice of Celebrity Squares, not to mention countless adverts. He initially continued as a Sunday afternoon DJ on Capital until a drop in listenership and revenue led to him being reunited with his former Radio London co-host Dave Cash and moved to the breakfast slot, returning to BBC Radio in October of 1981 for a Saturday morning slot on Radio 2. In the meantime, his Radio 1 spot and presenting gig on Top of the Pops was given to... Oh, um... Hmm. DLT? Dave Lee Travis. Thanks, Kenny. <laughs> so what's on TV afterwards? Well, BBC One pitches into Mastermind. Then it's the first part of Eastwood with Attenborough, where David Attenborough dosses around Southeast Asia, talking very quietly around some animals. This week he's in a bat cave in Borneo the size of St Paul's Cathedral. After the nine o'clock news, it's the show-jumping bit of the Horse of the Year show, followed by the current affairs show midweek, hosted by Ludovic Kennedy, and they finish off with late-night news, the documentary series Coral World about the reefs of Comoro in the Indian Ocean, regional news in your area, and the weather. BBC Two kick on with highlights from the golf, then it's part three of their dramatisation of Jane Eyre, then a one-off episode of the two Ronnies with a guest appearance by the people of Pan, then it's the Polish documentary Europa, about five people born in Britain to Polish parents who went to Katowice in June to visit grandparents they'd never met before, walk about in the footsteps of their mams and dads, watch Poland spank England 2-0 and talk about which country they'll be supporting next week. And they round off the night with News Extra and an examination of the world of television in real time. ITV is still running the arse end of the Colombo film, followed by the current affairs show this week. Then it's the streets of San Francisco. Now, there, there's a fucking theme tune. <laughs> followed by the news at 10, the film show Cinema, where Brian Truman looks at the people who have made some of the most familiar film scores of the past few years. Then it's the 1962 prison escape film The Break, featuring Tony Britton, Robert Urquhart and John Junkin, and they close down at half past midnight. So, boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Probably Kenny Everett's unfunniness and irritation and, mm. um, and, and the kind of just dreary elements of the show, more than the, more than the exciting elements in a way. Um, mm. it, for an episode from 73, and we were talking about this being a golden era, I think in terms of the presentation, the staging, the graphics and everything else, it is a golden era. In terms of the music featured, less so. Much yes. less so. Because I was a child, Kenny Everett, definitely, you know. Did you see that mad guy running a mock? Mm. Um, I, I missed the meeting where you're meant to say a muck. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we, we'd all have been doing impressions of the bits we could remember and running around doing zany faces for a day or two. Mm. But um, as, as an adult, he annoys me. Yeah, just like with the Roscoe episode, whenever the presenter is the main topic of conversation in the top of the pops, that's a bad sign. Mm. It's not Kenny Everett's day yet. He'd get that in a few years' time when Thames bunged him in with Barry Cryer and let him get on with it. But you can't do that on top of the pops. No, I don't mm-hmm. think so. What are we buying on Saturday? Uh, Tina, uh, Spinners, Quo, ELO, I think. Um, yeah, Showdown by ELO for definite. 
maybe mm. Ghetto Child by Detroit Spinners, maybe Caroline mm. by Quo, and at a push, maybe even Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Uh, but yeah, Yellow mm. Showdown is the one. And what does this episode tell us about October of 1973? I think in terms of Top of the Pops, this episode may well be a response in a way to the absolute slagging that the 500th episode um, uh, uh, got. And, and you know, in a sense to reassure... Mm. I don't know, those older people who were looking down on Top of the Pops a bit, that, hey, you know, it's not just all about mindless, youthful pop. Well, Top of the Pops should be about mindless, youthful pop. Um, exactly. You know, it absolutely should be a programme that, for me, is dominated by what young people want to see on the show, not anyone else. And unfortunately, what we see here is a kind of halfway house, a few moments of excitement where you can see the kids getting into it, a few moments of complete bemusement where the kids are like, what is this shit? It tells us that Britain's just waiting for for punk rock to give it the kick up the arse <laughs> so badly needs. No, no. Um, I think, for me, it's the rise or the resurgence, maybe, of the teen idol. It's the hidden force mm. here. It's waiting in the wings. Um, 1973 was the year David Bowie released Pinups, and by calling his album that, he captured the zeitgeist, because pinup culture was in the ascendant. And you can feel it here, even in absentia, with the ghost of David Cassidy lurking behind the chart countdown and his mm. next single, Waiting to Usurp Slade. And you can kind of see a passing yeah. on of the baton, or rather a snatching away of the baton from good-natured British uglies like Slade hmm. to beautiful American angels like David Cassidy and, of course, Donny Osmond. I mean, I mean, bless them, but did people fancy Dave Hill? Maybe. Um, oh. Noddy. Not Noddy, surely. I don't know. Mark Bolin was beautiful, and he arguably started all this, but mm. he was just about to go off the boil. His next single, Truck on Tyke, was his first to miss the top ten since shortening the band's name to T-Rex. So this was David Casty's moment, mm. and David Essex was also on the rise. The following year, we'd have the Bay City Rollers properly taking off, and you'd even have people like Sparks sending the girls crazy. Jackie magazine was at its peak. The, mm-hmm. And the best-selling issue ever of Jackie was a David Casty front cover in yeah. 1972. So yeah. it was a time of pinups and teen hysteria and a resurgence in scream ages, which hadn't been seen since the Beatles a decade earlier. And, of course, we didn't need the Beatles anymore because we had the electric light. <laughs> <laughs> and that pop craze youngsters brings us to the end of this episode all that remains now is the usual promotional flange www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music podcast reach out to us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p video playlist bit.ly slash cm57 vids money down the g-string patreon.com slash chart music Oh, very much, Neil Kulkarnet. No worries, Al. God bless you, Simon Price. Thank you. Loads of fun. Cheers. My name's Al Needham, and I'm still reeling from the shock that I could be presenting a podcast with Jesus Price <laughs> and Buzz Kulkarnet. <laughs> Unimaginative parents, man. <laughs> Chart music. Great big Hello, my name is Pete Ellison. This is Dave Cribb. Hello, and we do a podcast called Friends with Friends, as you might have guessed from the music that's playing underneath, uh, which is a sort of lo-fi rendition of the Friends theme tune for rights reasons. We get a different guest on every week on our podcast to talk about their favourite episode of Friends. And we look through it in excruciating detail. We pick through levels of plots like no one has ever done before. So if you like Friends or just listening to people talking, which are both valid activities, do look us up on the old podcast app than that friends with friends and we're on twitter at friends wf
Off a fella My name's Paulie I love Arthur My name's Michelle I'm their daughter My daughter's Vicky And I love Jeffrey My name's Richard powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of Real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.